0: So we'll be uh, Acts chapter 12. We're going to do um, verses 1 uh, through uh, 17 this morning. And uh, this is following directly on the heels then of what we were uh, walking through. Obviously, last week, I'll jog your memory that at the same time that there's this revival going on uh, down, uh, or excuse me, I should say up in Antioch and Cyrene and all of that, we, we kind of do another transition. Luke likes to do that as a at the same time kind of thing. Here's what was going on in a different location. So we kind of get the spectrum of what God's doing like across uh, his, his, uh, his territory, if you will, and how the gospel is expanding through the kingdom. So uh, with that being said, let me pray for our time in the word this morning, and then we will get to the text. Father, I pray this morning for our approaching you, that we would do so with open hearts and open minds, for you to speak to our spirits. Um, God, do a work through your word this morning in us. Pray that you would help me to not be in the way of whatever it is that you would want to speak this morning. God, I pray that you would use this time to encourage us um, towards um, trust in you. That you would use it to help us to think rightly about who you are. So Father, prepare our hearts, prepare us to receive what you would speak. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would, open. And uh, we're going to go starting in verse 1. If you're there, say there. All right, here we go. About that time, about that time is important. This is going to be several time statements. One of them is to tie it back to what we were just talking about in Antioch. But also, you're going to find out that there's a specific season that we're in for when this is occurring. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands, and that word violent hands actually means he stretched out his arm, if you will. He stretched out his arm to lay hands on some who were, belonged to the church. It says he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. We talked about that in the primer. The days of unleavened bread is interchangeable with the season of Passover. It's an eight-day period, starting with Passover, ending with the seven days of uh, eating unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, that being Herod, when he had seized him, he put him in prison. And he delivered him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. That four squads is actually four squads of four. So there's 16 soldiers given to guard Peter, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. If you have a King James that says after Easter, to bring him out to the people. Okay, so before we gloss right over uh, this one line that's spent on James... Uh, We need to take a minute because he's only afforded one line and his martyrdom is sort of overshadowed by this greater amazing story of Peter's jailbreak. So I want to actually acknowledge where we're at in Um, understanding where the church is and how they understand their role, and the apostles specifically. Remember that Peter, James, and John make up the inner three of Jesus's closest companions out of the apostles while he was doing ministry on earth. So we have this inner group of three people that we would say were Jesus's best buddies, right? And so we have one of those members, James here, dying. And so if there's any thought that perhaps Peter gets an escape, but James doesn't, because maybe Jesus loves Peter more than James. That's sort of negated by the fact that they sort of shared the same level of intimacy with Christ, and so there's no special favor that isn't on James that is on Peter. And God is no less aware or no less sovereign. He's no less moved by prayer. He's no less attentive to the church or James himself, but we still have the problem of these polar opposite results. We have James who's killed by the sword and nothing more said about him. And then Peter, who we're going to read about in the rest of this text, who gets escaped prison by this miraculous doing. And so what do we do with something like this? That, that we have these, these two totally different um, results. And so sorting this out starts with acknowledging that James no less is serving God's purposes than Peter is by dying. James fulfilled all that God had for him to do, and he was honored to join Christ as a faithful martyr. James' story ends right where it was intended to, in the way that it was intended to end. Not a second too early, not a second too late, precisely on time. We have to embrace that regardless of the circumstances that accompany the end of our story, God has already written the story. Okay? Okay. We have to believe that that's not true just for James, but it's also true for us. This is the foundation. And so I think the biggest hole in, the, in our thinking is around the idea of God's sovereignty. And that makes people cringe because they don't know what to do with that. What do I do with God's will and God's sovereignty? And, and my intention this morning is not to tease that out, but to point to you that we tend to be much more guided by emotion and logic than we are by what's said in God's word on this problem. And so because of that, we tend to subscribe to something that's much more like karma than it is about a God who's sovereign. Because we think, well, if we do things the right way or good things, then good things should happen back. And so that's, that's karma in a nutshell. Instead of thinking God is able, God is in charge, he's, he's, he's controlling these circumstances, and he is not only able, but he is good. And so I can trust that. So the truth is, That we are not subjected to, but we are privileged to serve a sovereign God. And that is the foundation of what prayer is. It has to be couched in this statement. Would you put it up? Three words. Say it with me. God is, if that statement isn't true, then prayer is worthless. And that statement is the summation of what sovereignty is. He is able to do whatever it is that we need him to do. Whatever it is that we petition for him to do. So we have to consider this truth this morning throughout the text as we read the response of the church to what's going on in society at large and culture and how it's pressing in and making things difficult. If you don't believe that God is able, then prayer is worthless and you should just give up now. But if he's able, then there's something we ought to do about the circumstances in our life. Let's keep going. In verse five, it says, so Peter was kept in prison. But earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Earnest prayer, underlined, was made to God by the church. So I I think if I was to sort of sum up uh, the the content or the the thought or the heart behind a lot of our prayers, it's either God, why me? Or God, why not me? Right? God, why am I going through this thing? I don't want to go through it. I I don't want this problem. I don't want this circumstance. I want whatever it is. Or that other person got what I wanted. God, why not me? Can I have it? Right, so it's an either an object of desire or an object of pushing it away, and behind that that premise in most of our prayer, we also attach a reason why God has done what He has or has not done, both to our circumstances and in the response or the answers to our prayer. Let me say that again: we attach a reason or a purpose for God on why He has or has not given us something, and then if we prayed for it, we also attach a, an assign a reason or a purpose for why he has done that. And these are reasons that we can't possibly know. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. So we can't possibly know the things that we want to know or pretend to know. Imagine you're waiting in line at a restaurant. It's a substantial line and uh, and you, you just want to get up there and order your juicy hamburger. And you're really hungry. And so you're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, as you begin to approach the counter, you watch the person who's in front of you order, and they walk away empty-handed. And so now you have sort of this dialogue going in the back of your mind because you first say, well, why did they walk away empty-handed? Maybe they're out of hamburgers, right? Or why did I wait so long in this line? And I knew this would happen, and right? So you've got a lot of ideas about why this person walked away without the hamburger that you had waited in line for. You with me so far, right? So we start to attach reasons and purposes for what has occurred when we can't possibly know why they did or did not get their burger. And we begin to conclude things from that. And so we say, well, should I get out of line and like conserve some time or conserve my dignity, or do I walk up here and just pretend to play dumb and order my hamburger like I didn't just see this guy walk away empty-handed? Okay? So I need you to think for a second about the context of the church praying earnestly to God for Peter. After an apparent no. After an apparent no. James was just captured and then beheaded. That's the no. That's the circumstance. That's the, if you want to talk about the the context or what's happening here. So after seeing that happen, then Peter's arrested. Well, the natural assumption for most of us would be, well, I guess the same thing will will happen here, right? And, And so we begin to assign reasons for why that would happen. So don't just think, that they prayed earnestly for, for Peter, but that they prayed at all after this apparent no. We could say things like, well, I guess God just isn't going to overturn Herod, or I guess he's not doing jailbreaks this week, or I guess we must have missed something, or we have done something wrong, or we didn't like, enter the combination just correctly, and so God will not dispense for us what it is that we ask for. And these are all false notions. The only wrong thing to do is not to appeal to the one who is able that's the only wrong thing you could do in this moment is not to appeal to the source of power. You just approach the counter and you say, I'd like a hamburger. And they hand you a hamburger. And all of your thoughts about why that person did or did not get the hamburger, I've gone away. But the problem is when we assign meaning and, and purpose behind God's movements and his, his choices, then we miss the boat and we'll, we, it will change how we act, not just in the moment, but it also shape us for the next time. And we ought not to do that. That's a problem. So throw all that away and just approach the one who is able. Forget trying to assign reasons why God will or will not answer what it is that we petition for. In verse 6, it says, now, when Herod was about to bring him out, that's an important statement because he's been held and they're they're not going to kill him until a specific moment. So when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, it's the last moment. There's They've been praying earnestly for as long as Peter's been captive. For it says Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. He's bound with two chains, and sentries were guarding the door to the prison. So it's, read Peter is secure in prison, right? But we just found out in the previous verse that earnest prayer was offered to God for him. The church is praying fervently. This word in uh, in other places it's translated as continuously. Like in 1 Thessalonians, excuse, 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, pray without ceasing, or pray continuously, which is definitely within the semantic range of the meaning of this word. But specifically referring to prayer, Luke uses the same word in um, Luke 22 when he's speaking about Jesus praying in the garden. So listen to this real quick. It says, and being in agony, Christ, he prayed more earnestly, earnestly, and his sweat became like... Great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So that word, earnestly, is is interchangeable with the idea of continuously. And so, in that context, it's obvious that continuous or earnestly, one of those fits better than the other. Jesus can't pray more continuously than he's already praying. So this word is uh, ektenos. Okay. So we read it in different places as as fervently or earnestly or continuously. And so when we think of something like being told to pray without ceasing, we think of the time spent. Like I should pray without stopping because that's what is being pointed to. It's obviously that Jesus is not praying more continuously. He's praying more earnestly. He's praying with intensity, intention, focus, conviction. He's straining, and that's the essence of this word straining. It literally means like to stretch out, to try and reach something that is just beyond your grasp. You're reaching out towards something. I don't think we pray with this kind of intensity through a sense of stretching towards God. We pray from obligation. It's the rules. We pray out of uh, politeness. We ought to do it, right? But we rarely pray with this kind of of, uh, intensity and focus and earnestness. But we're not pleading in an attempt to convince God to do something that he's unwilling to do, or to convince him to do something against something he had already decided to do, or because God is cruel and distant and he's not hear us unless we really pour ourselves out. Those are all wrong views of prayer and a wrong view of God. When we recognize that prayer is what moves God's hand, and that's the mystery of being the privilege of his children. It's prayer that will move God's hand. We should pray accordingly. When your children are small, and sometimes they either want something or they're not sure how to express what's going on or they're just hurt or something. They don't sit down and write a thesis about what it is that they want. They just either cry and reach up towards you, right? And that's the expression of, I need something. I need your help. So when First Thessalonians 5 through 12 says, pray without ceasing. I've heard pastors say things like, well, I just never say amen. So it's like I never hung up the phone, right? That's not not the intent of what's being said here. Praying without ceasing has more to do with not giving up than it has to do with not hanging up, okay? It means don't give up. In um, Luke chapter 18, where Jesus is telling this parable about prayer, I'm going to read the whole parable, but I've highlighted specific moments in this teaching to to point this out for you. So in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is teaching the disciples about prayer. And he says, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Okay, so what's the parable about? Praying and not losing heart, right? And different translations say about not giving up. So he said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God, nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city Who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward, he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And so the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? That's an important... The the, the last question is couched in the first statement. So the first statement is, he tells them a parable about praying without giving up. And then he asks at the end, so when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And so the question there about faith is tied directly to what prayer looks like. So praying without ceasing, what's happening here? well, are you praying right now? No. Were you praying when you were asleep? No. There's lots of times when you're not actually doing the activity of prayer, right? So it's it's not about whether or not you're engaged in the activity. Look at what's happening in the text. Peter is asleep. He's sound asleep. We're about to find that out. Peter is sleeping. And so you might ask, well, if the church is making earnest intercession, intercession for Peter, why is Peter not praying for himself. You think of the people that are concerned for Peter's well-being. Peter ought to be among them, yeah? Right? He's not, he's just snoring. He's sawing logs, chained to two soldiers, and here he is asleep in the midst of all the concern. Peter is mysteriously unconcerned in this moment. So praying without ceasing is more about praying with faith than it is about praying with frequency. Okay? I, I, I need to make a careful distinction because it might sound like I'm telling you you don't have to pray that often. I'm telling you it's not about praying more so that that means you mean it. It means about praying with faith, which means you mean it. So Peter's praying, or Peter isn't praying in this moment. Why is that? Because at some time you have to cease from praying. At some moment you have to cease. And ceasing in this moment is a ceasing of rest and trust. And ceasing in rest and trust means that Peter has faith. It's so it's a ceasing of rest and trust, not a ceasing of defeat and resignation. Oh, well, I won't get what I need. Oh, well, I guess God doesn't care. First Peter, the same guy, writes later on in chapter 5, verse 7 of his letter, he says, Having cast all your care on him because he cares for you, speaking about prayer. We cast all your cares on Christ because he cares for you. But it's in this ongoing, having already done it. It's in this past tense thing. That's what Peter's done. He's already cast his cares upon Christ and he's sleeping in this moment. And if you've cast your cares upon Christ, you ought not to reel them back in to re-examine them. Right? And so sometimes we find ourselves fretting away the moment, saying, I trust you, God. Let me check on it again. Have you fixed this yet? And so it speaks much more of our faithlessness than it does of faithfulness when we continually repeat the same things over to God. Philippians 4, six. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. The peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and mind. All prayer must be in faith. Right? Jesus says pray without, without giving up when I come back, will I find you praying with this kind of faith? And here Peter is praying at some point with that kind of faith because he's resting in God's answer. And so Peter's prayer had previously been what all of our prayers should be all the time. Your will be done, your kingdom come, amen. Which means, so be it, or let it be. So that's Peter's ability to sleep. Sometimes our our repetition or volume in prayer isn't faith, it's just the opposite. It's our our anxiousness, which is what we're commanded to give up over and to the Lord and to trust him in faith with whatever it is that he will do. So verse 7 begins the escape. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up, saying, get up quickly. Okay, so get the scene. He's chained. The big light in the room doesn't wake anybody up, apparently, but Peter, he strikes Peter, and the chains fall off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And when he went out, he followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but he thought he was seeing a vision. Okay, Peter's Peter's deep in sleep, and he's, he's sort of sleepwalking, if you will, through this jailbreak. So get the picture that Peter does nothing to assist Peter in the jailbreak. You with me? Right? It's all the angel. It, he's got to tell him even to get dressed and everything. And then verse 10 says, When they had passed by the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate, which leads into the city. That gate is still there. If you go to Jerusalem, and um, it's big. But it says here that it opened for them on its own accord. The word there is automate. Right? Automatic. He's got an automatic garage door opener. Here it is. The gates swing open, and they go out, and they went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. Verse 11 tells us, when Peter came to himself, okay, so he's been sleepwalking through this whole affair, and then finally he's out in the street, and then poof, the angel's gone. Peter comes to himself, and he says, now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. That's an important idea. And then verse 12 says, And when he realized this, underline that, or I've underlined it for you. He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark, and where many were gathered together, and they were praying. Okay, so there's a lot in that. And we could talk a lot about what the angel's doing or not doing. The the, the point of telling the story about how Peter escapes, and then this little recap at the end, is is curious if you just read the text for what it says. We tend to read the text hearing what somebody else has already said about it. And so it's curious that Peter recognizes afterward, and then it says, when he realized this, and then the actions that follow are all, I believe, couched in that recognition. So the question you ask, or I'm asking for you, and I will answer, is what does Peter realize in this moment, okay? So prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer doesn't make God do what he doesn't want to do. Prayer moves God's hand, and clearly here, God's hand is moved, this is the mystery that we enjoy as divine privilege. God hears our requests, and He moves because of them. And the movement is always the right answer. It's always at the. But prayer itself aligns our hearts with that truth. Prayer itself aligns our hearts. With that truth. What truth? That God's hand is moved by prayer. That God's answer is always what we need. That God's answer is right on time. And so when we pray, we're, we're saying we believe that. And it aligns our hearts with that truth. Okay? So that's what's happened here. Now, let's move to this other section of the text. We're doing like another meanwhile back at the ranch. In verse 13, it says, When he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, Recognizing Peter's voice and her joy, she did not open the gate, but she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. So, um, here's the sense of what's happening. Peter, remember, he's left in the street. The angel disappears. He decides to go to this house. Why this house? We'll answer that. Why this house? He goes there. He's left outside. He begins knocking at the door of the gateway. He's not in the home yet. Um, you could think of this like as a courtyard. To enter the home. There's like a common space and they're back in the house praying. And Peter's outside this gate and he knocks. And so she comes and she recognizes his voice. And she runs in and reports that Peter is standing at the gate. But in verse 15, they say, they said to her, You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And so they kept saying, It is his angel. So there's been like so much speculation about what this does or does not mean. So I'll just address it um, about what I think is happening in the text. So was this his angels? Uh, Was this his angel, okay, is is the question. Because people say, well, why did they think it was his angel? And so there's a whole whole realm of conspiracy theory underneath this that we don't need to go into. Why would an angel, first of all, need to knock on the door, right? It doesn't have to wait for you to open the door. angel could just go inside. He got inside the jail. He got outside the jail. He opened the iron gate. He did all of these things. Angels are not bound by doors, Okay. So that, that doesn't that doesn't even start but angels for the most part are not we're, we're told uh, guardian angels and so there's speculation that they they believe that each person has a guardian angel and that's what they're referring to here but m- more than likely angel is literally the same word as messenger and so i think in this moment they say it's his messenger it's the, the, he sent somebody from prison you're you're crazy you're not really hearing peter's voice he's not really here that's what I think is happening in this text. But for, we, don't, we don't have to worry about it because even if, even if they are right about guardian angels, it's not an angel, so we don't need to base our understanding on a mistaken notion anyway. It's Peter, okay? Not an angel, okay? So here's, here's the truth. Their disbelief here is what's curious. They're praying. We're told earnestly. Peter arrives. The servant girl recognizes him. She runs in inside. She tells them that Peter's there, and they disbelieve her report. We're told that if we trust God, he is able to do more than, abundantly more than, all that we could ask or imagine, right? So what's happening here? Is this the problem of the church lacking belief that God would answer their prayers? They're praying for Peter and We don't know what specifically it is that they're asking for, Peter. Maybe they're just asking for Peter's courage or that the Spirit would keep him faithful if he should happen to be a martyr. We don't know specifically what it is that they're petitioning God for. But there's a history in God's Word of the people disbelieving good news. When Abraham's told that they're going to have children, remember Sarai laughs. (laughs) Ha ha. There's no way, I'm too old, that can't happen to me. When Moses comes to tell the Israelites that God's gonna deliver them, they don't believe him. So sometimes the news is too good to be true because God is able to do abundantly more than all that we could ask or imagine. Did the church lack faith in their prayer? What about Peter? Peter, he was sleeping. So the uh, the church apparently was not really expecting God to answer their prayer. Is this true? I don't think that's the case. I think they did pray with faith. I think it's just so good they're not understanding how this could be true. And sometimes we think that if we don't ask for the right thing, then God can't do what He intends to do. Like, if God wants to heal this person and I don't pray for it exactly the way that God's going to do it, then He can't do it or He won't do it. And so this reveals that our faith is more in our prayers than it is in the object or the person that we pray to. Let me say that differently our faith is not in our prayers. Our faith or trust is in the one to whom our prayers petition. So we tend to misunderstand prayer itself. Prayer is an expression of trust. It's an action of faith. But our faith is not in the expression of trust. If I write a letter to someone and I want a response in return, There's some technical things that probably need to happen for that letter to be received. i got to get the address correct and i got to make sure that I address it to the right person. And maybe on the other end, somebody has to get that to the right person, get it in front of their eyes. But if I hope for a response, is my hope in the letter, is my hope in the one who will receive my letter and respond to it? It's in the person, not the object of the communication. And the object of our trust is betrayed when we begin to think about our prayers as the reason why God is or is not acting. But consistently, this is more often than not. I mean, I, I can't think of an exception. When people are frustrated with their circumstances, they don't know why God's not answering. They always think, "What part of this did I mess up? Did I miss a number in the zip code? Like maybe God's not checking his mail till Saturday, and I need this on Tuesday, right?" And those those are false notions because your trust now is in the method of communication. You're worried about the letter getting there, not whether or not God is able. So it's not just is He able, but is He willing? And He is. God's ear is always open to his people. And he always favors the request of his son who is perfectly pleasing. And that is an important encouragement for us. It's an indication of our fixation and our faith being in the wrong place. And our, and our, and our fixation about getting it right so that God will hopefully grant us what we need. The effectiveness of prayer is tied directly to God's intentions or his will to accomplish the thing prayed for. And that's it. You, you can do nothing outside of that, but you can do everything inside of that. That's all you need to ask for. And sometimes when we ask for the wrong thing, that's okay, because God will do what he will do for his reasons. Let me show you Jesus teaching the same thing. In another parable about prayer, in chapter 11 of Luke, he's telling the story. He says, I tell you, oh, he's telling the story of a uh, um, sorry, the, woman, the, the man who goes next door, and he wants to borrow some food at midnight, and he knocks on the door, right? And he, he, he asks for, uh, for, friend, for, for food because he has a guest. And in um, Luke chapter 11, verse 8, Jesus says this, I tell you, though he will not get up, the person who owns the house, who's sleeping, though he will not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, Yet, because of his impudence or his, his, his persistence or the, his imposition on this man at midnight, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And we stop right there. That's the end of our exploration into that parable, Right? He's making a statement here, so get the flow of thought. There's somebody who imposes on somebody else and asks for some food at midnight. And he says, you know, if he doesn't get up just because he's his friend, he's going to get up just because he's bothering him in the middle of the night. So then he goes on to say, so ask, seek, knock, and it will be open. Then verse 11, he goes on to make a further example. Now, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And that's an important point. Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. The Father knows what you need. He's going to give exactly what it is that you need. But he's the Father. And he turns his ear to the Son. God will respond because he's a good father, not an unwilling friend. And he's not responding because you've imposed on him. Or because of just persistence. He gives good gifts. And if we read the rest of the verse, he will always give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. And when we pray for the Holy Spirit, that is a, a request we can always have. So we ought to pray something like, Lord, use me. But a better prayer is, Lord, make me usable. Right? If we want something, Lord, Lord give me what I need. Or... Lord, help me to be what you need in this moment so I can be faithful, and God will always grant that. So verse 16 tells us that Peter continued knocking. He's at the gate, they're outside, everybody inside disbelieving. Rhoda, you're crazy, it's not him. And when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. He said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed, and he went to another place. All right, so the rest of our time is going to back up to the moment where Peter realizes something and what's happening here at the end of the text. And I I had so many questions as I was reading this text. How did Peter know where to go? How did he know where they were gathered for prayer? And why did Peter go there? Why did he not just get out of town? Clearly, he he gets out of town after this. He goes to another place. He's still a wanted man. He just had a prison escape. So why did he bother knocking so long when Rhoda doesn't open the door? why Why doesn't he just leave? And get out of Dodge. Why did Peter so need to present his story to the church? Why? Well, he needed to testify and encourage the brothers. Well, why didn't the angel open this last door for Peter? Why, why, why did he leave him outside the, 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 the gate for this whole confusing situation to occur? Peter's deliverance is a testimony of the faithfulness of God in the midst of, and even in sometimes in spite of, imperfect prayer. It is the truth that God answers prayer, regardless of whether we do it right or wrong, or whether we believe or not. And so any teaching that says, well, God didn't do that because you didn't have enough faith. that's totally uh, obliterated by all, all aspects of this text. Peter's not even awake. So it's not about Peter's amount of faith to get out of this, this moment. We're told that Jesus himself is our intercessor and that the Spirit is helps us to pray when we don't know how to pray or we don't know what to pray. Romans 8, 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for when we do not know how we should pray, the Spirit himself intercedes with inexplicable or inexpressible groanings, excuse me. So what is it, I think, that that Peter recognizes in this moment where he escapes out of prison? Well, there's this... Incredible overlay of another point in Peter's life that's happening in this exact moment, in sort of a replay of an exact circumstance Peter's already lived. Through. It's like a déjà vu, but it like actually happened. Okay, so the last time Peter was standing in a in a courtyard or at a gate, and a servant girl recognized him, was the lowest point in Peter's life. It's at the moment where Peter denies Christ three times. We're told that it's, it's the same language used. At, and Peter was at the gate, and a servant girl recognized this man was one of them. And she recognized, no, it wasn't me, right? And then again, this man is a Galilean. And that statement right there tells you that she recognized his voice. It was his accent. He was kind of a, Galileans were kind of hick. And so that would have been their identification, that this is the Galilean. He was with that man, and he denies it again. And so here we have this story of Peter being recognized by a servant girl at the moment as at his lowest. And about this moment, in Luke chapter 22, Jesus prophesying to Peter that he would fail this test, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But right after that, Jesus says an important thing. But I have prayed for you. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when you have turned, again, strengthen your brothers. And I've always just relegated that statement to, well, once Peter was done denying and Jesus comes and he restores him, then he's supposed to encourage the brothers. Well, as, as, as Peter had denied uh, knowing Christ at that moment, there was a, a lot to, to undo. And how does he encourage his brothers after that? Well, I think what we're seeing here is Peter recognizing the fact that Jesus' prayer was good for everything that Peter was ever going to need. Even in the moment where Peter's in prison, it's not just about Peter's temptation or Peter's denial. It's about everything that Peter experiences. So in that moment of the greatest trial of his life, when he's in prison expecting to die, probably hoping to go see Jesus the next day in person, right, as as he's uh, martyred, He's trusting Christ, but Christ has prayed for him that he would not fail. And when he escapes, he says, surely I know that God has sent his angel to deliver me. And then he says, when he recognized this, now he's on a mission. And what's the mission? The mission that Christ gave him. When you return, when, when you return go and strengthen your brothers. It's the exact same language. It says, when he told them all that had happened about his escape from prison, he said, go and tell James and the brothers. This is important. When Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6 that we should pray in the Spirit, he's not talking about heavenly languages. He's saying, trust the Spirit to make your petition perfect, and that Christ's petition then is always perfect. And it always asks for what we need, and we can always trust Him in those things. Our inability to correctly pinpoint God's plans is not an obstacle to answered prayer. Not praying is an obstacle to answered prayer. <laughs> right? We may frequently do and fail to recognize or know what God's perfect will is. But we don't need to know that. We don't need to know exactly what we ought to pray for, but we can trust God to answer our petition perfectly because of Christ's intercession for us and because the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So the purpose of this um, story on prayer and the importance of Peter recognizing that Christ himself had intercessed for him, that he was faithful even now, we see an important principle. that there's, there's, This is really a story of two powers at, at play here. Two, two warring hands of power. We see Herod's hand of power stretched out to destroy. And then we see the church fervently praying, which is also a stretching out of their hand towards a God who is able, and then God's strong arm delivering Peter. God stretched out his hand because the church reached up and stretched out theirs towards him, but not to make him move, but as empty. Empty hands. That's prayer. God, help. That's stretching out, restraining. God, I need your help. Prayer, fundamentally, is the expression of faith. It's the action of trust. Little prayer, little faith. No prayer, no faith, right? So, in the end, I think we have, I, I've said this the last time we talk on prayer. I, my goal is not to rearrange your thoughts on prayer so that it becomes like an academic thing where I have to do it this way and think about it in this way. Otherwise, God will not. We're encouraged to go to God like a father and trust him like a father. And in doing that, we're asking him to do whatever he needs to do to help us. And he will. But we trust him to do that. And whatever he does is the help that he's given us. I think that's one of the hardest things for us to truly rest in. And we, we need to take notes from this. Yeah, the church is praying and they're up, but they trust. And Peter's sleeping. We, we need to have that kind of faith. Whatever happens, they, they may have, we don't know the specifics of what they were praying for, but Peter's testimony to them tells them whatever it was that you prayed for was, was right. And even if it wasn't break Peter out of prison, Peter tells him this is what God's faithfulness looked like in this occasion. Then we don't actually see Peter again except for one time in the rest of the book of Acts. And so this is sort of the end of Peter's story as we know it, as sort of the, the prime person um, working uh, the gospel in Jerusalem. And so I think there's, there's just such an, an element of this same time of the year that Peter would have Remembered what it was when he had denied Christ and that how good God had been and how faithful Jesus was to pray for him that he would not fail, that his faith would not fail. And here his prayer is answered. So my hope for us, my prayer for you is that we would learn that same kind of reaching up with open hands to God and trusting his answers for what we need.